Hello and welcome to the English classroom. Today I'm talking about the poet Francis Thompson. He was born in 1859, one of five children, and he was noted as being a frail, delicate and shy boy. At 11, he was sent to Urshul College, a Catholic seminary, where his friends and teachers noted he was moony, abstracted, untidy, tardy, and unobservant. He did, however, uh, exhibit the hallmarks of a potentially very successful scholar. He was a great uh, lover of history and poetry, an avid reader, and one of his English masters remarked that his writing ability was far superior to anyone of his age that he'd ever seen. Now, his father at first encouraged Francis to try his hand at entering the priesthood. However, Father Tate wrote in a letter to Mr. Thompson stating that he didn't feel that Francis was cut out for the cloth. It was after that time that Mr. Fr Mr. Thompson encouraged his son to become a doctor like himself. He went along to Owens College, now called the University of Manchester, where he studied medicine for eight years. One must assume that his father did pressure him into this uh, study. He was there for eight years. During that time, his sister noted that often he would go to his father and ask for three or four pounds to cover the dissection fees at the college to the point where his father did remark you are cutting up a lot of dead bodies son the problem wasn't that francis couldn't graduate or didn't have the skills it's just that when it came to his final examinations he just didn't show up so he never did go on to become a practicing doctor in fact he was so desperate to do anything but become a doctor that he tried to enlist in the army and was rejected due to his size and health. Now, although 26 is not young, he did run away from home in 1885, empty-handed, penniless, the tragic, struggling artist living on the streets of London, trying to make ends meet. He took on a number of jobs from bootmaker to bookseller and probably the lowest point in his career was selling matches. One suspects that you can't put much food on the table doing that. It was during this time that he fell into the icy clutches of opium and became a complete drug addict. He then lived on the streets in Charing Cross and slept by the River Thames, which sounds romantic, but it was probably very very cold and very uh, uncomfortable. He was there with vagrants and prostitutes living like a hobo with still this dream in his heart that he would become a somebody, a writer, a poet. At one point though he hit rock bottom. It was during that nadir that he actually contemplated killing himself. Now he claims he had a vision of the poet Thomas Chatterton, who had taken his own life a hundred years earlier at the very young age of 17. Now, Thomas Chatterton was an amazingly prolific writer. And in fact, 
He influenced a lot of romantic writers like Shelley Keats, Wordsworth and Coleridge. He'd actually fallen into a grave by accident a couple of days before he took his own life. His friend pulled him out of the grave and he said, I've actually been having a bit of a battle with the grave the last few days, which kind of foreshadowed his own self-slaughter. Anyway, it was this Thomas Chatterton, a vision, an apparition of this incredibly talented writer whose career was cut short at his own hand that inspired Francis Thomas to continue with his uh, pursuit of becoming a well-known poet. Now after three years of living on the streets he was discovered he did send some poetry to a magazine called Merry England. The editors were a married couple Wilfred and Alice Maynon and they actually recognized in him a genius. They actually took him into their home which is, you know, not unusual, this sort of thing happened, this tradition of patronage. We often wonder whether that happens anymore. Probably doesn't, but it sounds so romantic to be taken in and, and uh, looked after so that your genius as a writer or an artist can flourish. Anyway, they were very concerned about his addiction to opium and they sent him or encouraged to send him to a hospital where he uh, would get help to recover from his addiction. Now he stayed at Our Lady of England Priory at Storrington for about nine years. And while he never completely went off opium, it was reduced. Uh, he took a little bit every now and then for his nerve damage, but he wrote a lot of his poems during this period, 1888 to 1897, that's nine years. Now, his first book of poems in 1893 was published by the Maynolds and it received a lot of positive um, reception and he went on to become quite well known as a writer and poet. Unfortunately, he did die young at the age of 47 to tuberculosis. Buried at St Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green, it states on his tombstone, look for me in the nurseries of heaven. And that was from a line of, of a poem that he wrote to his godson, which was one of the Maynol's children. Some argue that, the, that his poetry is quite modern. Uh, they believe that his medical studies coupled with living on the streets gave him a grittiness and a realism, which was quite different to a lot of the romantic poets. However, Unfortunately for him, because he cannot defend himself, his name has been more recently associated with a, a darker, shadier past. It was Dr. Joseph Rupps, a medical examiner and a forensic pathologist, who wrote in the Criminologist magazine in 1988, was Francis Thomas actually Jack the Ripper? It was from here that uh, an Australian teacher also in 1999 postulated and added that name to a list of Jack the Ripper suspects online, uh, creating a frenzy of Jack the Ripologists as they postulated whether or not he was the person behind those horrific murders. Look, there are some things in his life that may point to this being a credible um, speculation. I mean, he did walk around with a scalpel, scalpel knife in his pocket, which he claimed was for shaving his beard. 
He also did write that to be a good critic or a good writer, you need to be like a surgeon. He stated he had better seek some critic who will lay his subject on the table, nick out every nerve of thought, every vessel of emotion, every muscle of expression with light, cool, fastidious scalpel, and then call him on to admire the neat dissection. It was also one of his poems, The Nightmare of the Witch Babies, in 1887, that some may argue is a little bit of a proof that perhaps as a zealot, um, you know, fanatic with perhaps some misogynistic undertones in his character, there's no history that he had a relationship of any kind, although he was befriended at one stage before the Maynells by a prostitute who took him in and gave him food and board. He calls her in some of his work his, his saviour, but maybe there's a bit of a mixed emotion there around that. Anyway, I'm going to read some of the verses, not all, of The Nightmare of the Witch Babies, and you can kind of see where perhaps some of those um, you know, shadows are passed over him from this poem. The Nightmare of the Witch Babies. Two witch babies, ha ha, two witch babies, ho ho. A bedamon ridden hag with the devil pigged alone begat them, laid at night on the bloody rusted stone, and they dwell within the land of the bare shank bone, where the evil goes to and fro. Two witch babies, ho ho ho. A lusty knight, ha ha, on a swart steed, ho ho, rode upon the land where the silence feels alone, rode upon the land of the bare shank bone, rode upon the strand of the dead men's groan, where evil goes to and fro, two witch babies, ho, ho, ho. A rotten mist, ha ha, like a dead man's flesh, was abhorrent in the air, clung to a tether to the wood of the wicked-looking trees, was a scuff upon the flood, and the reeds, they were pulpy with blood, blood, blood. And the clouds were a-looming low, to which babies, ho, ho, ho. No one life there, ha ha, no sweet life there, ho ho, but the long loud laugh and the short shrill howl, and the quick brisk flip of the horned owl, as he flits right past with his gloomy cowl, through the murkiness long and low, to which babies ho, ho, ho. What is it sees he, ha ha, there in the frightfulness, ho ho, there he saw a maiden, fairest fair, sad were her dusk eyes, long was her hair, sad were her dreaming eyes, misty her hair, and the strange was her garments flowed, two witch babies, ho, ho, ho. Swiftly he followed her, ha ha, eagerly followed her, ho ho, from the rank, the greasy soil, red bubbles oozed and stood till it grew a putrid slime, and where his horses trod, the ground plash plashes with a wet too like to blood, and chill terrors like a fungus grow, the two witch babies, ho, ho, ho. There stayed the maiden, ha ha, shed all her beauty, ho ho, she shed her flower of beauty, grew laidly old and dire, was the demon-ridden witch, and the consort of hellfire. Am I lovely, noble knight? See thy heart's own desire. Now they come, come upon thee low. To which babies, ho, ho, 
Ho. Into the fogginess. Ha ha. Lo, she's corrupted. Ho ho. Comes there a death with the look of a witch and joins that creak like a night bird's scritch and a breath that smokes like a smoking pitch and eyeless sockets aglow to which babies ho 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 close behind it ha ha ah close behind it ho ho comes there a babe of bloated youth with a curdled die and a snaggy tooth and a life no mortal dare speaks its sooth and its tongue like a worm doth show to which babies ho 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 its paunch are swollen, ha ha, its life are swollen, ho ho, like the days drowned. Harsh was its hum, and its paunch was rent like a brasten drum, and the blubbered fat from its belly doth come with a sickening ooze. Hell made it so, to which babies, ho ho ho. It leaps on his charger, ha ha, it clasps him right fondly, ho ho. Its joints are about him, its breath in its bones, its eyes glare in his, and it sucks up his groans. He from his horse, he burns on the stones, and his mail cracks off in a glow, to which babies ho, ho, ho. Its tooth is in his shoulder, ha, ha, his skin dully champing, ho, ho. Slimed like a snail with that loathly thing, his own self writhed him with shuddering. His gaze grew dark, and his soul took wing, while his breath still kept its foe, to which babies ho, ho, ho. Hissed, hissed, a gloominess, ha ha ha, hissed, hissed, a something, ho ho. Away with a scream, the swart steed flew, the evil shadows, those ghostly too, and a slime kneaded with a sanguine dew into that dread slime below, to which babies, ho, ho, ho. Two witch babies, ha ha, two witch babies, ho ho. The elder hath a name, and the name of it is Lust. And the name of that, its brother, ah, its name is Lust's Disgust. They are ever in a land where the sun is dead with rust. So the scummy mist thickens below. Woe for the witch babies, woe, woe, woe. There where corruption alone doth grow, there still the evil goes to and fro. It is formless, nameless, vague, it is dread made palpable. None can paint its face, for none who behold it live to tell. It is a shadow on the earth of the awful nether hell. It is a nightmare, God made it so. Shun the land and shun the woman, shun the wicked spell. To which babies, woe, woe. Whoa. So that is actually the full poem that I read to you there called The Nightmare of the Witch Babies by Francis Thomas. And so you can see there from that poem there's a little bit of a dark shadowy loathing of a prostitute type figure who is um, murdered basically. So that is one of the first poems that I've read to you and to be fair to Francis Thomas we'll read some of his other poems um, so that you can have a more of a balanced idea of his work. Alright, to be fair to Francis Thompson I will read one of his most famous poems, The Hound of Heaven. Now this particular poem is basically the pursuit of the human soul by God and the dog being you know the spirit of God chasing down this rebellious human soul the Bishop of London 
said that this particular poem was one of the most tremendous poems ever written. Times London said people will be learning it for 200 years. Literary columnist for Boston Globe said perhaps the most beloved and ubiquitously taught poem among American Catholics for over half a century. Some other fans of Francis Thompson were G.K. Chesterton who said, with Francis Thompson we lost the greatest poetic energy since Browning. And J.R.R. Tolkien purchased a volume of his work citing it as an influence on his own writing. So let me read for you The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up this day in hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed followed after but with unharrying chase and unperturbed pace deliberate speed majestic instancy they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet all things betray thee who betrayest me I pleaded, outlaw-wise, by many a hearted casement, curtained red, trellised with intertwining charities, for though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore adread, lest having him, I must have naught beside. But if one little casement parted wide, the gust of his approach would clash it too, Fear wist not to evade, as love wist to pursue. Across the marchant of the world I fled, and troubled the gold gateways of the stars, smiting for shelter on their clanged bars, fretted to dulcet jars, and sylvan chatter the pale ports of the moon. I said to dawn, be sudden, to eve, be soon. With thy young skyey blossoms, heap me over from this tremendous lover. Float thy vague veil about me, lest he see. I tempted all his servitors, but to find my own betrayal in their constancy, in faith to him, their fickleness to me, their traitorous trueness, and their loyal deceit. To all swift things, for swiftness did I sue, clung to the whistling mane of every wind. But whether they swept, smoothly fleet, the long savannas of the blue, or whether, thunder-driven, they changed his chariot, thaw to heaven, plashy with flying lightnings round the spurn of their feet, Fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue, still with unharrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet and a voice above their beat. 
Naught shelters thee who will not shelter me. I sought no more that after which I strayed in face of man or maid, but still within the little children's eyes seems something, something that replies, they at least are for me, surely for me. I turned to me to them very wistfully, but just as their young eyes grew sudden fair, with dawning answers there, their angel plucked them from me by the hair. Come then, ye other children, nature's share with me, said I, your delicate fellowship, let me greet you lip to lip, let me twine with you caresses, wanting with our lady mother's vagrant tresses, banqueting with her in her wind-walled palace, underneath her azured dais, quaffing as your taintless way is from a chalice, lucent weeping out of the dayspring. So it was done. I, in their delicate fellowship, was one, drew the bolt of nature's secrecies. I knew all swift importings of the willful face of skies. I knew how the clouds arise spumed of the wild sea snortings, all that's born or dies, rose and drooped with, made them shapers of mine own moods, or wailful or divine, with them joyed and was bereaven. I was heavy with the even, when she lit her glimmering tapers round the day's dead sanctities. I laughed in the morning's eyes, I triumphed and I saddened with all weather. Heaven and I wept together, and its sweet tears were salt with mortal mine against the red throb of its sunset heart. I laid mine own to beat and share commingling heat. But not by that, by that was eased my human smart. In vain my tears were wet on heaven's grey cheek, for ah, uh, we know not what each other says, these things and I. In sound I speak, their sound is but their stir, they speak by silences. Nature, poor stepdam, cannot slack my druth. Let her if she would owe me. Drop yon blue blossom veil of sky and show me the breasts of her tenderness. Never did any milk of hers once bless my thirsting mouth. Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, and past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet. Lo, naught contents thee, who contentest not me. Naked I wait thy love's uplifted stroke, my harness piece by piece thou hast hewn from me and spit, smitten me to my knee. I am defenceless utterly. I slept methinks and woke and slowly gazing find me stripped in sleep. In the rash, lusty head of my young powers I shook the pillaring hours and pulled my life upon me, grimmed with smears. I stand amid the dust of the mounded years. My mangled youth lies dead beneath the heap. My days have crackled and gone up in smoke, have puffed and burst as sun starts on a stream. 
yay, faileth now, even dream the dreamer and the lute, the lutinist, even the linked fantasies in whose blossomy twist I swung the earth, a trinket at my wrist, a yielding chords of all too weak account for earth with heavy grief so overplussed. <laughs> ah, is thy love indeed a weed, albeit an amaranth amaranthine weed? Suffering no flowers except its own to mount? Ah, must, designer infinite. Ah, must thou char the wood ere thou canst lime with it? My freshness spent is wavering shower in the dust, and now my heart is as broken fount, wherein tear drippings stagnate, spit down ever from the dank thoughts that shiver upon the sighful branches mind. Such is what is to be. The pulp so bitter, how shall taste the rind? I dimly guess what time in mists confounds, yet ever and anon a trumpet sounds from the hid battlements of eternity. Those shaken mists a space unsettle then, round the half-glimpsed turret slowly wash again. But not ere him who summoneth, I first have seen, and wound with glooming robes, purpureal, cypress-crowned, his name I know, and what his trumpet saith. Whether man's heart or life it be which yields, thee harvest, must thy harvest fields be dunged with rotten death? Now if that long pursuit comes on at hand, the brute that voice is round me like a bursting sea. And is thy earth so marred, shattered in, shard on shard? Lo, all things fly thee, for thou fliest me. Strange, piteous, futile thing, wherefore should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I makes much of naught, he said, and human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited of all man's clotted clay the dingiest clot. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble, ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand and come. Halts by me that footfall is my gloom after all. Shade of his hand, outstretched, caressingly. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he who thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. So there you go, The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. While one of my favourite poems about autumn comes from John Keats, his Ode to Autumn, I really am a big fan of Francis Thompson's A Corumbus for Autumn. A Corumbus is a hair, a top knot of hair, and there's a number of other words in this poem which I just thought I'd bring to your attention before I read it. An agaric is a mushroom. 
Um, Bachant is a form of Bacchus, which is the god of wine. There's a number of words related to colour, such as impurpurate, which is to make purple, rubiginous, which is rust-coloured, and giles, which is a, herald a heraldic red. There's also the word umber, which is earthy browns, which he's turned into a verb with umbered. He also has some particular words linked to religious um, ceremony, such as sacerdotal, which is relating to priests. We have a blanche amiste, which is a liturgical vestment worn by priests. We have a hierophant, which is a person who brings people or congregants into the presence of the holy and a catafalque, which is a wooden frame supporting a coffin of a distinguished person. What a great word in here, conflagrate, which is to burn or burst into flames, which is such a lovely image for an autumn poem. And favonian, which is to warm, which comes from the Latin favonius, which is warm winds. All right, without further ado, let me read for you A Corumbus for Autumn by Francis Thompson. Hearken my chant, tis as a bacchance, a grape spurt, a vine splash, a tossed tress, flown vaunt-tis. Suffer my singing gypsy of seasons, ere they go winging, ere winter throws his slacking snows in thy feasting flagons, impurpurate glows. Tanned maiden with cheeks like apples russet, and a breast of brown agaric, faint flushing at tip, and a mouth too red for the moon to buss it, but her cheek unbow its vestal ship, thy mists and clip, her steel-clear circuit illuminous, until it crust, rubiginous, with the glorious gills of a glowing rust. Far other saw we, other indeed, the crescent moon, in the May days dead, fly up with its slender white wings spread, out of its nest in the sea's waved mead. How are the veins of thee autumn laden? Umbered juices and pulpered oozes, pappy out of the cherry bruises, froth the veins of thee wild, wild maiden, with hair that musters in globbered clusters, in tumbling clusters like swarthy grapes, round thy brow and thine ears overshaden with the burning darkness of eyes like pansies, like velvet pansies, wherethrough escapes the splendid might of thy conflagrate fancies. With robe gold tawny, not hiding the shapes of the feet whereunto it falleth down, thy naked feet unsandaled, with robe gold tawny that does not veil feet where the red is meshed in the brown like a rubied sun in a venice sail the wesselous heart of the year is thine his bacchic fingers disentwine his coronal at thy festival his reveling fingers disentwine leaf flower and all and let them fall blossom and all in thy wavering wine the summer looks out from her brazen tower through the flashing bars of July, waiting thy ripened golden shower whereof there cometh with sandals fleet the northwest flying viewlessly with a sword to shear and untamable feet 
and the gorgon head of the winter snow to stiffen the gazing earth as stone. In crystal, heaven's magic sphere, poised in the palm of thy fervid hand, thou seest the enchanted show appear that stain for Vovian firmament, richer than ever the Occident gave up to bygone summer's wand. Day's dying, dragon lies drooping his crest, panting red pants into the west. Or a butterfly sunset claps its wings, with flitter alit on the swinging blossom, the gutsy blossom that tosses and swings, of the sea with its blown and ruffled bosom, its ruffled bosom where through the wind sings, till the crisped petals are loosened and strown, overblown on the sand, shed, curling as dead, rose leaves curl on the fleckered strand. Or higher, holier, saintlier when as now all nature sacerdotal seems, and thou, the calm hour strikes on yon golden gong in tones of floating and mellow light, a spreading summons to evensong. See how there the cowled night kneels on the eastern sanctuary stair. What is this feel of incense everywhere? Clings it round folds of the blanch amidst clouds, upwafted by the solemn thrifter, the mighty spirit unknown that swingeth the slow earth before the embannered throne? Or is it the season under all these shrouds of light and sense and silence makes her known a presence everywhere, an inarticulate prayer, a hand on the soothed tresses of the air? But there is one hour scant of this Titanian primal liturgy, as there is but one hour for me and thee, autumn, for thee and thy hierophant of this grave ending chant. Round the earth still and stark, heaven's death lights kindle, yellow spark by spark beneath the dreadful catafalque of the dark. And I had ended there, but a great wind blew all the stars to flare and cried, I sweep a path before the moon, tarry now the coming of the moon, for she is coming soon. Then died before the coming of the moon, and she came forth upon the treptant air, in vesture unimagined fair, woven as wolf of flag lilies, and curdled as of flag lilies, the vapour at her feet vapour at the feet of her, and a haze about her tinged in fainter wise, as if she had trodden the stars in press, till the gold wine spurted over her dress, till the gold wine gushed out round her feet, spouted over her stained wear, and bubbled in golden froth at her feet, and hung like a whirlpool's mist around her. Still, mighty season, do I see it, thy sway is still majestical thou holdest of god by title sure thine indefeasible investiture and that right round thy locks a native too the heavens upon thy brow imperial this huge terrene thy ball and over thy shoulders thrown wide airs depending pall what if thine earth be blear and bleak of hue still still the skies are sweet 
Still, season, still thou hast thy triumphs there. How have I, unaware, forgetful of my strain in Orkville, cleft the great rondure of thy reign complete, yielding thee half, who hast indeed the all? I will not think thy sovereignty begun, but with the shepherd's son, that washes in the sea the star's gold fleeces, or that with the day it ceases, who sets his burning lips to the salt brine and purples it to wine. While I behold how ermined Artemis ordained weed must wear, and toil thy business, who witness am of her, her too in autumn turned a vintager, and, laden with its lampered clusters bright, the fiery fruited vineyard of this night. A Snowflake by Francis Thompson What heart could have thought you, past our devisal, O filigree petal fashioned so purely, fragilely, surely, from what paradisal, imaginless metal, too costly for cost? Who hammered you, wrought you from Argentine vapour? God was my shaper, passing surmisal. He hammered, he wrought me, he curled silver vapour to lust of his mind. Thou couldst not have thought me so purely, so palely, tinily, surely, mightily, frailly, insculped and embossed with his hammer of wind and his graver of frost. Mm-hmm.